the maracas I go chick chicky boom chick chicky boom from Studio A in Las Vegas, hi, I'm Pedro Jose Greer. They call me Joe, and this podcast is Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter. And what it's about is meeting fascinating individuals and talking about the intersection of society with medical education and health outcomes in communities. And today I have who I consider a dear friend who I met out here, knew of him prior to coming out here, and we actually have the same initials, PJG. So we, uh, we can interchange shirts, except mine would be extremely large on him and it would look terrible. The, and his would be way too tight on me. It's uh, Mr. Peter Guzman. Peter Guzman is an incredibly accomplished uh, businessman who has sold almost $700 million in real estate. He also has a company called OPA, and he is the president of the Latin Chamber of Commerce of Nevada and here in Las Vegas. It's the most powerful Latin chamber, I think, in the United States right now. And he is a person that actually brought the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce to have their national meeting here in Las Vegas, right? Correct. Something I worked very, very hard on. Competed against uh, big boys, Chicago, Miami, uh, Nashville, and North Carolina. They didn't know who they were going up against. That was a problem. And one of the things is, tell me what your mission is as the uh, president of the Latin chamber. So listen, you know, uh, the, the Latin Chamber has been around over 48 years. Uh, I took over for the founder who actually did about 40 years at wow. the Latin Chamber of Commerce, uh, a man that I've known since I was uh, 15 years old, Otto Merida. And, you know, listen, predominantly the mission of the chamber is to fight on behalf of small businesses, protect small businesses, because we know that uh, we know that small businesses, entrepreneurs create the most jobs. Um, and And so... Uh, that's our mission. But Otto taught me very well because I have been on the board of directors of the Latin Chamber as a volunteer and been involved with the Chamber for over 15 years. Um, when I became president five and a half years ago, you know, Otto Media, he always taught me, he said, listen, um, yeah, we're about the small business community. But because of the trust factor, because of the incredible work that Otto Merida did way before me, um, I have the responsibility uh, to get involved in everything else. Uh, people come in our lobby. Uh, the thing that I started uh, when I became president was I taught my staff, I go, listen, people walk in, you ask one question, how can we help you? We don't care what color they are, sexual orientation, one arm or five arms, we just care how can we help you? That's what the Latin Chamber is all about and I think that that type of mentality uh, and my staff buying into that has created the power uh, house that we, we now have. And this individual, this is sort of what he does on the side. Because the other side gigs he has, he's uh, on the October 1st Las Vegas Victims Fund, distribution of the funds, the Nature Conservancy, the Mob Museum Board, which I think is one of the coolest things that you're on, the Nevada Governor's Appointed Judicial Selection Committee, and vice chairperson for the Workforce uh, Connection, which he oversees $25 million annually from the state. And, you know, now that we're still in the middle of this pandemic, it seems like it's peaking again, the Hispanic community was grossly affected adversely compared to other communities. And in particular, we saw things, and particularly with small businesses. If you're a very small business, you aren't required to get benefits and health insurance for individuals. And what ended up happening which was horrible from my professional side, 
was that you saw the actual xenophobia and racism and sexism that occurs in my profession. So telemedicine was originally developed for the poor working class and for the rural. Well, when COVID hit, the poor working class, the poor and the rural didn't get any telemedicine because they didn't have a doctor to talk to. And when you have small businesses, those were grossly affected adversely. Not only that, it put them at the highest risk. They were, in essence, frontliners. And because of the mistrust that they have in the system, because it's well, my profession is well deserving of that because we've ignored these communities, is now you're having vaccine hesitancy at some of the highest risk populations. Because, you know, family is something very important. And so many times... In Hispanic communities, you have multi-generational families all living together. That's, a, that's part of our culture. And we see that more than everything. And, and I like what you said, but in, and if we can have a real honest, frank conversation, which is the only kind I like to really have. Yes. Uh, listen, this thing was politicized from day one. Mm. That's the real problem. This thing was politicized from day one by both parties. parties when Trump, you know, made it so that this thing could move very, very quickly. There were, lo- there were Democrats at the highest level saying, well, we can't trust it because, again, they don't understand that people are actually really listening. So when they say we can't trust this or that, th- people in my community, they get that information. And then, and then so we move, you know, we move forward. Now the mass, that became a political uh, uh, a weapon. Everything's been politicized and at the detriment and damage mostly to the minority community, and it pisses me off. And then on top of that, you know, misinformation with the speed of the internet today, with the speed of, of the ability to get information out, you know, there's a flip side to that. Bad information gets out real quick as well. And my community, you know, takes that in. They, they want to believe some of this stuff. So, yeah, we had a big problem, and, and mask was a big problem. I remember we had a big problem with mask, and I got a call from our Clark County commissioner, and she said, you know, your community is not masking up. And I said, we don't have masks. I said, we don't have masks. What are you talking about? And, you know, a man named Jim Murin, dear friend of mine, you know, he stepped up big time. And I had, I had 25,000 masks delivered, reusable masks, by the way, uh, delivered to my chamber. And in, a, in three weekends, me and my board, we went into the, what we call, well, the neighborhood, Right, the hood. And we went in there and we knocked on doors and we gave out masks. And there were nine, ten people living in the house. You know how quickly you could spread COVID when, when, you, when you're living in a way that is cultural? Um, you know, yeah, we delivered a lot of masks and we got them out. And I'm proud of that. But, you know, what really, really upsets me is that the, the misinformation, the politicizing of, of, of a subject that is really, really hurtful, really hurtful to the minority community. No, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And one of the missions we have here in Las Vegas with the medical school we're starting at Roseman, I'm the uh, founding dean, is to have diversity in our class. Only about 5.5% of all medical students in the United States of America are Hispanic. That is not representative of who we are. Only 5% are African Americans. And so we have a pathway program, which we call Aspire, Aspira that we do, and we've started doing it with LIT, Leaders in uh, Training, which is a spectacular organization here in Las Vegas, so that we can get these kids interested in not just being physicians, but they can go to Roseman Dental School, they could go to uh, nursing school, they can become pharmacists, because we have to have that shift. And the other reason for that shift is, 
If I go into a Hispanic community, I better be speaking Spanish so that everybody feels comfortable. Well, I would even take it further. I mean, for God's sakes, we're in America, right? Speak Spanish. <laughs> well, like we used to have signs in Miami. That I joke doesn't always go over so well, but it is what it is. <laughs> I know. Where do you think you are? Speak. I, I actually said that to somebody at a restaurant. They were speaking French. I, I said, for God's sakes, you're in the United States. Speak Spanish. Yeah. I mean, I mean, and, and, and all kidding aside, I mean, I'm very, very proud to have two uh, wonderful young adults, my kids. Uh, they're, they're bilingual. Um, they've graduated college. I'm proud of them being bilingual. And, and I don't get to accept a lot of credit for it. My in-laws, uh, especially my mother-in-law, who is just an amazing woman, um, as soon as my first kid was born, she told my father-in-law, I'm not working anymore. I just want to babysit. And she did. And they, they forced both of my kids to be bilingual today. Which is incredible because being bilingual just expands who you are. Well, for example, I have a friend in Singapore his, his daughter is now um, going into fifth grade. She already knows her language, knows English, Spanish, fifth grade. Well, what's that, what's that old joke? What do you call somebody who speaks three languages, trilingual, somebody who speaks two, bilingual, and somebody who speaks one language, American? Exactly. <laughs> and uh, and uh, it's easy for us to make jokes because we're very proud. We're both uh, first-generation Americans and... We think this is a great country, and we're equally as responsible as anybody else to see what's wrong and make it right. Well, I think it takes honest conversations. We can fix so much of today's issues just by real honest conversations and pulling out some of the politics behind it and just getting to the nuts and bolts, right? I mean, it could really do a lot. With the idea that when we have these conversations, we both want to resolve a problem. Nothing else. Nothing else. That's right. That's the end And you point. said telemedicine. You know how important telemedicine is to the Hispanic community? I mean, again, honest conversations. People don't understand that a lot of these households don't have transportation. And they're not going to get on the wonderful RTC when it takes, you know, two or three different buses to get to their doctor up in right. Summerlin. And so telemedicine is, is I think, uh, just a wonderful Project And the whole future of medicine is going to be changing. And COVID has done a lot of that, the technology that's involved. So we have to prepare these students to have, first of all, the virtues that many have lost in my profession, which is humility and empathy. And empathy, we know, which could be a consequence of the American medical uh, education system because it drops off to the floor after your third year. And only one in five visits does a patient perceive empathy from a doctor to the point where you have architects now developing empathetic interior design. Amazing, isn't it? It's, it is amazing. Now, you, you just uh, launched something in the middle of the pandemic called Avanzar. Avanzar, advance. Yes. Yeah. And why not? I mean, when people question me, so we did it in English first, wildly successful, sold out, and people called me and asked me, why would, you do, why would you launch anything during pandemic? And I'm like, it's the perfect time. You're sitting at home. Yeah. I'm going to bring it to you virtually. Why not? You want to become a leader? This is the way to do it. And then, you know, we had an outcry for a Spanish version. So now we got Avanzar in Español. Just a wonderful program of leadership and teaching some, some, some of the basics. You know, I mean, uh, you know, things like banking and taxes and and legal issues, you know, these are things that get people into trouble early on in their entrepreneurship. So we, this, this program tries to get the people off on the right foot. And it's been wildly successful. 
And I'm almost ready to announce that uh, it's already been funded for 2022. Oh, really? Um, so you'll be the first to know when it does. And, and one of the great things that you're doing and what you were talking about today, we have a program called Genesis, which is household-centered care. Understanding that a lot of people, especially if they have two or three jobs, don't have time to go to the doctor. And if they do go to the doctor, like you said, it's a schlep, number one. Number two, you lose 20% of your income for that week, plus what you got to pay. And so it's a big deal. It is a huge deal. Not including the copay or the pay you have to make to the doctor and the prescriptions you got to fill. And, and by the way, as you know, uh, in, the, in the Hispanic community, it doesn't take much to get people to talk themselves out of going to yeah. see a doctor, okay? So when you put up any barriers, it makes it easy for them to not go, which you know, we know the process. That hurts everybody in the long run, uh, emergency rooms and all those kind of things. And so, yeah, I mean, I love that we're teaching um, our younger Hispanics that the best way to have healthy, long lives is to go see a doctor and get yes. checkups and do the right things early on, not wait till you're 60 and, and 70 and, you know, things are starting to hurt. The the joke in medicine is every ten years they get your your annual checkup, <laughs> so, exactly. which is not really the way you're supposed to do it. How important was your father in your life, and particularly as I see you with your family and with what you do for your community and your love for Las Vegas and all that? Boy, I didn't know that one was coming. You, you did your homework, uh, so uh, um, and I'll try to do it without getting too emotional. <clears throat> My father was everything to me. Um, he just, just was a brilliant man. Came here from Cuba with a sixth grade, seventh grade, you know, education, escaping um, communism. And uh, he just had a way of, of calming me and, and teaching me life lessons that today, everything that I've learned uh, in, in schooling, uh, very, very little of it takes me over the finish line in business deals and in life. In, in the things that life is going to hit hit you with. And I always hear my dad's voice. My father was my, my best man at my wedding. Um, he just meant everything to me. I, I'm, I'm truly, I know it's, people say that, I am truly here and doing the, all the things I can do because of the love that he, get, he showed me. He had me very late in life. I have three older sisters, much older than me. And he decided he wanted to have a boy. And so I kind of feel like, I was born, he hugged me, and he never let go. That's how I feel in my life. Uh, you know, I grew up on, I got, did most of my learning in life on 28th Street and Bonanza. You wouldn't know this, but not a real great, great place. And the apartments that I learned a lot about life uh, or the bad things about life are still there on Bonanza and 28th Street. And, uh, you know, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, the relationship with the mother, my mom wasn't all that great. I think she probably had postpartum having me so late in her life as well. But my dad never gave up on me. He just never gave up on me. And uh, he's my hero. He's my hero. Well, if he's, he's got to be so proud of you and what you've done, not just for yourself and your family, but Peter for this entire community and what you've done for the future of these kids and the opportunities they're going to have, and we want to work together with that. Let me ask you a question. Well, I want to say one thing. Yeah. There was a time in my real estate career where I was really doing this, just taking off, right? And I started getting some awards, and I remember taking them to, to one of the awards, and I was so proud. I worked so hard. 
I wanted him to be there. You know, he was getting older. I wanted him to be there to see me get this big award. And uh, as I went up to get it, I looked down. I could see him crying, and my dad very rarely cried. And uh, when we were walking out, I said to him, I said, I hope I made you proud, Dad. And he said, do you think any amount of trophies or glass could make me proud of you? I was proud of you the minute you were in my hands. Man, I mean, to hear that from a proud man, yeah, it put a lot of pressure on me to do well in life after that, you know, make him even more proud. The, uh, the, my father was the first one to finish high school in our family. And it was always about making the family name proud. For our parents to come over to this country with nothing. Because I was born in the United States by accident and went back to Cuba and came here when I was almost six. And it's, uh, it's a first-generation dream. Yep. It's a dream of your own culture. It's, uh, it's, it's a matter of what can I do to make where I am better. Not just myself or my family, but do it all of that because those are the lessons we teach our children. Of course. Those are the lessons we teach. And, uh, you know, my dad taught me all those lessons and loved America beyond, uh, you know, anything. Yeah. Uh, but loved family. He always taught me, you know, the stuff is all good. All the stuff you're going to accumulate is all great. But no stuff is more important than the family stuff. And I, that's, that's in the back of my head always. And you have, your two children are extremely successful. Successful and beyond successful at careers, they're, I find them successful people uh, because of the human beings they are. They care, you know, they, they're, they're, caring guys, they're caring kids. I mean, uh, and I love that. That makes me feel very successful. So let me ask you a question. With your experience in life, your importance of family, your importance of understanding business, your protection of a vulnerable part of our society, which are uh, Hispanics. What would you tell a new and emerging medical school? What have we not taught well? And what do we need to do? I think the importance of being, of if you want to live a long, healthy life, not live miserably in your elder years because you waited so long, that's, that's what we need to teach our folks, that you cannot continue this pattern of waiting so long. Do your regular checkups. Create, you know, we teach at the Latin Chamber, create personal relationships, personal relationships with your banker, with your doctor, with your tax man. And if you have to have a lawyer, get, you know, a personal relationship with a lawyer. Those are the keys to success in the business world and probably in your health life. 100%. 100%. And we know statistically that Hispanic communities, especially out here in the Southwest where most of the studies have been done, they tend to start, they're living a little longer now than before. However, they're living sicker. Yeah. And they're getting Alzheimer's a lot earlier, which has a lot to do with diet and exercise and things of that nature. And the, the importance of understanding these things and so the whole family can chip in because Alzheimer's right now, or dementia, excuse me, which includes Alzheimer's, uh, about four years ago, it averaged $91,000 per year per person. We were spending more money on dementia than we were on cardiovascular and on cancer in this country. The other big problems we have in this country are behavioral health. And one of the things we do with our household-centered care is the therapist comes in and takes care of the individual with the uh, mental health disorder. But at the same time, the therapist then turns around and talks to the family about it. Because it's a subject that's not commonly talked about in this country, regardless of what socioeconomic level you're at. And we need to address all these things. Now, the opioid crisis is now peaking in 
black and Hispanic communities. It didn't at the beginning for the same reason that Hispanics uh, were having trouble getting bank loans was the racism and xenophobia in medicine. When they'd go show up at the ED, if they asked for, if they had pain, we were not going to prescribe you an opioid because we know you're just seeking drugs. Whereas if you're white, which is where the problem really exploded at the beginning, is... Uh, uh, you have, again, back to honest conversations, yeah. right? I mean, you ask a lot of the average per, uh, people on the street, you know, who do you think is on welfare the most? Well, they'll, they'll say black and Hispanic. Right. And they're nothing further than the truth. I mean... But these are honest conversations that aren't being had, and I'm having them. Good. Because misinformation, there's probably nothing more that pisses me off than misinformation. It's, it's now costing lives. It's deadly. I couldn't agree with you more. And, that's, and it's, it's not only that misinformation, it's you going out there and educating to the non-Hispanic community as well as to the Hispanic community, which is the importance of you sitting on all these boards and in positions that you're on. I mean, th- listen... Exactly, and I appreciate you saying that because I'm not on these boards because I want to check a box. First of all, I had a very, very good life. I've had a good life, continue to have a good life. I feel very blessed. I could have continued my in real estate. I didn't have to become uh, president of the chamber. Uh, you know, it's a lot of work, and you don't do it to get rich. You don't do it to get a heavy paycheck. You do it because you want to give back. And so um, that being said, you know, I'm on these boards. I, 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 again, I go back to my father, lead by example. You know, you could say a lot of things, but show them. Lead by example. So I'm on these boards to show Latinos and Latinas that they can be on these board, important boards, that they can work hard. Uh, I want to lead by example. So everything I do, you know, we, we announce it and we make it big, not because it, it's going to benefit me at all. I want young Latino Latinos who think that they don't have a chance at this thing we call the American dream, I want them to see that they do. And I want to, I want to see them in professional schools, and I'm going to tell you why. And I want first-generation kids, especially Hispanics and African-Americans, for two reasons. Number one, they're hungry. They work harder. We just started a master's program where if they're at Nevada State uh, uh, University, they can transfer over to get a master's pr- a degree after their third year. We'll prepare them with the biomedical sciences. And as we had in our prior experience at the prior medical school we started, where we had 55% Hispanic and black, they ended up with the highest scores in the of entire course. state. You know, the, the idea that you can't do that is you have to... I love what you just said. You know, the hunger. Yes. The hunger is so there. It's just they need a little bit of an opportunity. Just crack the door open a little bit. I know young people that got to take two city buses to get to a better high school right now. You know, I, I, uh, I've been married 40 years, and I married way up. I mean, way up, okay? And so uh, I was lucky. With, I have a beautiful family with two kids, a boy and a girl. The, my daughter's the oldest. Of course, when you have an older daughter and a younger son, you think you dropped your son on your head, his head because the maturity level is day and night. Way different. Yeah, Mine's the opposite. The, uh, and uh, one of the greatest prides I had, my father was from Pinar del Rio, Los Arroyos de Mantua a small village which is known sort of like the Appalachians of Cuba. Uh, there's an old joke from... That's where the, they left the tractor in that, the movie theater. That's exactly right. That's a, the story I was going to say. They, it was actually a cement mixer because what happened was yeah, they built right. a movie theater in Pinar del Rio and uh, when they built the walls, they forgot that they had left a cement machine in there. <laughs> so, But that, that's the famous story. Uh, from there, but one of the greatest prides I had was my daughter went to Harvard Law School, and taking my father 
up to Boston to see his daughter graduate, his granddaughter graduate from it's Harvard, amazing. from Pinar del Rio, Cuba. The, uh, and, you know, it's, she's, it, it was so funny because she actually got into every school from Yale on down, but I, I'm assuming your parents had as strong as accents as my parents did. I told her she couldn't go to Yale because then my mother would call it jail. And I'd have to explain all the time that, no, no, Alana's not in jail. She's at Yale. So, and I said she could go to Harvard as long as she didn't become like them. And uh, she does public interest law, and she's, I'm very, very proud of her. My son I'm equally as proud of, and uh, both of them were philosophy majors in, in college. My wife is an art historian, and uh, she went to Harvard Law School. My son double major in philosophy and theology, so he's a professional comedian. <laughs> exactly. What else do you do with that? Uh, the, uh, <clears throat> the other thing I've got about getting the first generation is trying to do something that you advocate for all the time. If you advocate for small business, you can allow a family to start creating wealth. The first kid that graduates from college and becomes a professional will be the first one that will have that opportunity to create wealth. We're not talking Bill Gates' wealth. We're talking about owning a home, paying for your kid's education. Not only that, one of the things we find, and particularly with Hispanic kids, is you take the first generation. I want them to graduate from Roseman Medical School. I want them to go to Hopkins and train. And you know what? They're going to come back. Why are they coming back? Because they're the first generation. Of course. Now, everybody's talking about we need more graduate medical education programs and things of that nature. There's some truth to that, but these are very old studies that don't show it out. But the other thing is, don't you want them to train at the very best place where they do their residencies and bring it back home here to Vegas? That's how we're going to create more physicians in this town and open up the doors. I agree. And... I agree. And, and you know, uh, even talking about those kind of opportunities excites me because we weren't having those conversations and now we are and, and grateful for your leadership uh, to, to make sure that those conversations are happening. You know, listen, uh, Latinos and Latinas and, and minority kids, they want those same opportunities. They just, for a while there, it seemed unattainable to them. But they have great examples of great work ethic right there in their house with their grandparents and their parents. So they have the tools. Uh, they have the, the fundamental tools to really do well. Um, we just need to present the opportunities. And, and the more we do that, I believe society wins, not yeah. just them. We all win. Yes. I couldn't agree with you more. I couldn't agree with you more. And it was funny because at our prior institution, we had these first-generation college kids. Actually, 70% of them only got into our school. And that's what you expect in a startup when you start a new medical school. However, we throw talent away in this country, and we can't do that because they had a 100% match in ophthalmology, urology, neurosurgery, almost 100% in orthopedic surgery. And I remember somebody coming up to me and saying, well, they're Hispanic and they're black. Don't you want them to go back into the, into the body or the hood and be primary care doctors? I said, so they graduate top of their class. They don't have the option to be an ophthalmologist? Do you really think that just because you're an ophthalmologist, you're not going to go back? Because there's a diabetic problem that's going crazy. It's a, uh, an endemic. They all have yeah. problems with their eyes. Number one cause of blindness in this country is diabetes. I particularly, uh, in that regard, you know, listen, if we're going to pay their college, um, I'm okay with uh, asking them to do their first two years, maybe in a, you know, a more high-risk area. If we're going to pay their college. Right. Uh, there's got to be some give and take, right? There's got to be, you know, some skin in the game. So I'm okay with that. 
but I don't, I don't really necessarily subscribe to the, to a black cop can only work the black neighborhood. A Hispanic cop can. We just had yeah. this discussion. That's a. I don't subscribe to that. I told you about my experience up when I was with Lou Sullivan back in the late '80s, working under the Bush Senior administration when. It was 1985 that actually the very first, this is how old I am, the very first report on minority health came out. And he uh, was suggesting appropriately so that we needed more minorities in medical school for minority areas, because traditionally they do tend to go back. And I just remember raising my hand and going, Ekumi, Ekumi, my name is Pedro. Do I get like the Barrio and Mark Smith III, he gets Manhattan? Is this how this works? Yeah. Or shouldn't all doctors be able to be That's taking right. care of all people? Shouldn't we ta- take our oath seriously? And that's how that's what I subscribe to. Yes, uh, you know. Yes, I'm proud to be Cuban. I'm proud to be Latino, but I'm proud. I, I'm proud to be a good human being, and and I try to help anybody I can every day. Uh, I think we need more of that kind of mentality. Um, not saying you can't be proud of who you are. I did not say that. Yeah. But at the end of the day, be proud to be a human being and and help help somebody behind you, in front of you, or on the side of you. You know, I'll tell you a story. When I first got to uh, college to go play football at the University of Florida, it was second or third. Is that, where you're bra- is that your way of bragging that you were a football player? I was a terrible football player. Actually, I was the third Cuban to play there and the only one that didn't start. Okay? But I did call timeout. And the first one was Carlos Alvarez, the Cuban Comet, who was All-American back in the early 70s. And then Rafaelito Ortega, who ended up being All-Pro with Atlanta and Miami. But uh, so I got there because my last, the dorms were segregated. Because my last name was Greer, Pedro Jose Greer. Apparently, nobody in North Florida had ever heard of Pedro Jose, so I was placed in the black half of the of the uh, of the dorm. And my roommate, who happened to have been the largest human being ever from the state of Georgia, opened the door, looked down at me, and said, "Shoot, actually, there was an I, not two O's. I thought you'd be black." And I looked at him. I said, "It's worse than you think." I said, I'm Cuban. I said, we look like them, but we dance like you. That's right. And so those were my two most important <laughs> lessons in life I got when I was 18 years old was if they're huge, become their friend. That's self-survival. We celebrate our differences, but we need to celebrate what we all have in common, which is mostly our DNA. And if we all work together, there isn't anything we can't accomplish in this world. I firmly believe it. I still believe it. And I'm not going to allow anybody to take away that belief from me. Fantastic. Peter, you're one of the most incredible people I've met. Your accomplishments, although they mean nothing to you, they mean a lot for so many in this community and obviously around this country. It's been uh, my honor to get to know you and to share cigars with you. Yes, we have. And uh, Las Vegas, and I'm going to speak for Las Vegas. Thank you for being here. And thank you for what you do. Well, I feel the same way about you, and I think this community is uh, better off having you in it. And uh, I think we're going to do a lot of special things together. We're just getting started. I, I couldn't agree. Two Cubans, one with white hair and the other one grain. Let's <laughs> believe it, and I'm let, proud of it. Let's make a difference. From Studio A in Las Vegas, this is Cuba Pete, No Laughing Matter, hoping to bring solutions to this community and this country. Thank you. I go 